0: Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for listening to the Equity Meets podcast series by Equity Labs at the University of Denver. My name is Ashley Hill, and I'm the assistant director of Equity Labs.
1: And my name is Maria England, and I am an MSW graduate intern at Equity Labs.
0: Our show is committed to interrogating contemporary issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion across disciplines, industries, and contexts by leaning in on the expertise of interdisciplinary thought leaders and elevating the voices of those who live in the margins.
1: Today, we are evaluating the world of arts and entertainment. As we saw during the award season this year, representation has been a huge conversation. But what happens when we dig a little deeper into this large but pivotal industry, we have guests that represent varying types of entertainment and arts with us today to discuss the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work that needs to be done. I would like to start by introducing our guests for today's podcast. Thank you all for being here today for our sixth podcast episode. Our first guest we are joined by is, is soprano Zoe Rose Palace. Zoe Rose received her master's degree in May of 2022 from the University of Alabama and currently teaches opera at UA under the tutelage of Paul Hodeling. She was most recently seen with the UA Opera Theater as the title character in Tobias' Pickers, Therese Joaquin, Elsina and & Elsina, and Pamina and Dai Zoberflute. She received her undergraduate degree at Florida State University in 2020, where she studied with Dr. Wanda Brister and was last seen as young Alice in Cipolo's Glory Denied.
0: Our next guest is Rebecca Rouse, an associate professor in game development at the University of Hovda in Sweden. Her research focuses on investigating new forms of storytelling with new technologies such as immersive and responsive systems. Rouse's Applied Design and Artistic Research is complemented by work in critical pedagogies, design methods, queer feminist media theory, and history of technology.
1: Our final guest is Amberlyn Ashley, an actor in TV and film media. Amber, born and raised in Colorado, found her love of acting in elementary school during school plays. She studied theater and photography at the Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she got her bachelor's. She studied acting in London and then studied photography and French in Paris. She also started training at the Front Range Acting Studio based in Denver to transition into TV and film acting. A few roles Amber has played include an officer in A Deadly Price for Her Pretty Face, a hippie in Cry Macho, a soul sister wanting to dance for Soul Train in American Soul, and even a zombie from the locals.
0: Thanks you all so much for being here today. We are really pleased to be sharing time and space with so many awesome folks. So and we're really, really looking forward to having a conversation about equity in the entertainment industry um, from a lot of different perspectives and kind of exploring all the different pieces of what that looks like um, in our world right now. So we'll we'll start off with um, one of our wonderful MSW interns, Maria uh, asking asking some questions for us. So take it away, Maria.
1: Tell us about your role in the entertainment industry. How did you get involved and interested in this line of work?
0: Yeah, go ahead, Joy Rose. So
2: I will say I am I'm at the very start of my career and um, I'm sort of grateful for this journey. I started off just in high school choir and musical theater like a lot of people and I also grew up in church singing church music. My mom was a church music director all my life and Um, she just recently, uh, retired, um, she's in her mid sixties now, but, um, and growing up, you know, everybody was belting, everybody was singing all the pop songs and man, that just wasn't happening for my voice. (laughs) Um, it seemed like my, uh, not to get too technical, but it seemed like I never had great, uh, like development of like like what they would call belt voice capacity. So, you know, think of your your Beyonce's, your Katy Perry's, um, all of the great musical theater and pop performers. And so I started singing some classical music and really developing my, my voice in choral music. And I figured out, oh, wow, you know, my head voice is really, really powerful kind of naturally. And somehow I got into Florida State University and I worked with an amazing teacher, Dr. Wanda Brister, and the rest was history. I think opera is very therapeutic. It's a way to use our voice in like the loudest capacity possible, really. So um, that's kind of what got me started, was necessity.
0: <laughs> nice. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm already learning things about, about opera that I didn't know. So awesome. Uh, Amber, would you like to go next?
3: Well, mine's a little interesting. Um, I was pretty sheltered as a kid, and I went to a private school, Denver Waldorf School, for elementary, where they did not believe in TV. Everything was you have to use your imagination. So my parents took that into the home, and we were not allowed to watch TV movies except for maybe on the weekends. Um, but one day, my parents they decided they wanted to watch this movie, and it was my first R-rated movie, so it's a little bit more meteor and raw kind of movie, and it was Tombstone. Uh, They love Westerns. (laughs) And, you know, Doc, you know, Val Kilmer, his death scene really took to my heart. I was like, what is this? Why am I crying? I don't even understand what's going on in this whole movie. And I I was just crying, and I said, oh my gosh. I, I want to do this to people. I want to invoke emotion in people too. Like, how can I do this? And at the time, my my dream before watching this, I wanted to be a, a police officer. And you know, watching the news with my parents, and I saw a police officer a police officer uh, get shot and die. That kind of busted my bubble of dreams. And then I wanted to be a firefighter. I wanted to help people. I wanted to you know protect people in a way. And so when I saw Val Kilmer dying in that in that scene in Tombstone, I was like, I think that's how I help people. I help people, you know, open up and feel things. You know, I can play different characters. I can play the cop. I can play the the firefighter if I want to. But I can also help people escape reality if they need to as well, you know, from their problems. That's how I kind of got into it.
0: Wow, that's really that's fascinating. I love the the Falwell murder scene. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible, and I I appreciate the connections you made to the sort of um, very multi dimensional nature of being an actor and how that connects to what you wanted to do before, which was be a police officer. So that's really really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that.
4: Um, Thank you. Yeah, Rebecca, would you like to go next? Hey, sure, I can. I. So I, I'm excited that we all share like performing background, actually. Um, but the path to become a games professor was very circuitous. So I can try and share a little bit of that. But I I also started out like Zoe Rose uh, singing in church, doing plays in church and plays in school, musical theater in school. I was a theater kid, still am a theater kid inside um, and thought I would be an actor um, and, and started out studying theater and voice in college. But I became fascinated with technology on stage and then started working as a director and a playwright and doing things like casting a robot instead of a person in a play and and just became more and more interested in how new technologies could help us tell stories in new ways, take old stories and make them new again. And then I ended up going further in graduate study so I could have access to some new technologies like augmented reality and virtual reality. So I ended up studying further. I I never um, set out to be an academic. (laughs) I never thought I would keep going to school again and again or get a PhD. That was never my dream. But really, it's been about storytelling for me all along, and it still is. I ended up in a doctoral program doing a dissertation on new technologies in theater, but the program was very strong in video games and game design. So that's where I started learning more about games and see a lot of parallels between theater and games. Um, the people on stage in the theater show are players and the people who are enjoying the video game are also players and creating, you know, imaginary creative worlds to experience new things. And, um, so that's, uh, that's the path I took.
0: Wow. That is really incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, yeah, I didn't know you had um, such a depth of theater background, so it's fun to see the ways that y'all are are connected, those threads we can kind of tug on as we keep talking today. So well, the way that we've structured our conversation today reflects the way that we approach our work at Equity Labs. So, um all the workshops and the pieces that we put out into the world to try to educate folks and bring folks into the conversation about equity and justice are focused on these sort of four categories. So there's intrapersonal, so what's happening within us, interpersonal, what's happening when we interact with others, epistemic, so how we think about the work that we do, um, and then institutional, so more focused on um systemic changes. So what with what we're making observations about with the work, what can we do to change it at a, at a bigger level? So that's how we structured our questions today. So um, I'm going to start with an intrapersonal question. So in um, yourself, and um, so how you how you find this to be in the work that you're doing. And it's, how do you see equity and justice showing up in your area of expertise in the entertainment industry? And how has this impacted how you do your work?
4: Yes, I can say from my education perspective, so educating in game design, I, I was never that interested in teaching like many researchers until it didn't work. And that happened in the games classroom. Um, I started out at a school that was majority male students, majority white students also, and was often in a classroom where I was the only woman, maybe one of a handful. And I had never intended to teach at a boys school, but that's often what happens teaching in certain disciplines that are, that are male dominated. And I was given a class to uh, refresh and I wanted to add in some examples of games. I added in some examples of games made by women, made by people of color, made by queer people. And I got slammed by the students. They were angry. They're furious. They wrote, you know, in the evaluations, they didn't pay tuition money for this and they didn't want feminist theory shoved down their throat. Well, there wasn't any feminist theory in that iteration of the course, but it made me want to put it in. And and it made me get interested and curious about their anger and reach out to a colleague who's an expert in intergroup dialogue, Amy Coron, and had a background in DEI education. I said, can you help me? I, my teaching isn't working. And that began a uh, about five-year-long research in teaching collaboration with her. that really is about, bring DEI into games education uh, because there's, there are huge problems. There are wonderful things about game culture and there are huge problems about game culture, which were reflected of course in the makeup in the classroom where I was the odd man out or the odd woman out. Um, And it wasn't until the classroom was really kind of broken that it became then interesting to think about and necessary to think about how could it be improved?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's interesting to hear you say that, that the reflection from the students was we didn't want feminist theory sort of like shoved down our throats. And, um, I'd be curious if you can share an example of how you, for yourself, how you kind of tweaked your teaching or how you changed the way that you approached your games classes to, to include that, to include more feminist theory or to include that approach.
4: It had, it was a radical change. It was a huge change to develop the capacity of the students to meet that material and to develop the capacity of myself to be able to deliver that material. So I had to take out a lot of content from the course and instead make space for that kind of capacity building, which Amy led and taught me about intergroup dialogue. So it was about taking things to a very personal and basic level in the classroom to be able to for us all to be able to reflect critically about our own positionality, our own way of being in the world, how we're all politically inflected creatures, we all carry you know, experiences of privilege and oppression, to reflect critically about that within ourselves, to be able to communicate with care and respect to each other around these topics, and then to be able to then critically reflect about those issues in games, and then think about how to be a game designer how are we going to be game designers in the world we want to live in? How are we going to design games that help make the world a better place rather than games that perpetuate uh, oppression and harm? So there, were, that was the goal, right? But there are a lot of steps before that and I had to take a lot of content out of the course to make room to do that. And it was an iterative process. Like I said, Amy and I worked together over many, many years to do that. And it's work that then I've continued to do now that I moved to another school um,
3: Here in Sweden too. Wow,
0: wow, that's really great. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that example.
3: Yeah, go ahead, Amber. Um, so in the acting world, it's I feel like equity and justice. There's this kind of tug of war going on a little bit. It's kind of a here's a little bit here, and then it's kind of pulled back, and then here's a little bit here, and then it's kind of pulled back. Um. I recently had a conversation with one of my agents. I haven't been getting a lot of auditions from her for a while. while, And I asked her, what's going on? You know, when I first signed up um, with you a few years ago, I was getting audition after audition. um, And now it's kind of slowed down. Is it because of the pandemic or what's going on? And she said, honestly, to be blunt with you, the industry wants to pretend like it's being diverse but it's really not you know they they throw you in there and then you know the trend turns back around it's like okay we we did this trend of diversity now we're going kind of backwards we take a step back now we want more um white males versus you know last year it was we don't want any more white males we don't want any more blondes blue eye whatever and um now it's the new trend quote unquote is indigenous and uh native american so it's like we want diversity but we're doing chunks of different groups at a time not just the world really looks like this and i remember having a conversation with my mom years ago she said people write what they see you know you have these writers if all of your writers are white you know, their world is white, you know, if you, and that's where you get this, oh, now we have BET, we have Black entertainment, we have Black movies, and to me, I'm like, this isn't a Black movie, this is just a movie with more Black characters in it. This movie is just a movie, but everyone's white, not even the background, you know, are Black people. The Black community has this game of how many black people do you see in this movie and most of the time you you only have one hand up you know there's four there's two there's three oh I see that guy um so now it's it, it there's this game of tug of war where you're just a sprinkle here a sprinkle there and it's it's sometimes the character is all in one it's a you know, a Black person and he's part of also the LGBTQ plus community or he's someone who's disabled and they're, of, you know, they're Hispanic or something like that. So it's like grouped into one person versus the 10 characters.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I hadn't thought about the the sort of condensing or consolidating of what folks might categorize as as diverse identities or oppressed groups into one character I hadn't thought about that before but now that I am I'm like oh my god it's like so many shows come to mind where that is absolutely the case like one of my favorite shows is Sex Education um which has a relatively diverse cast I I think but I'm thinking about the the one character who's black and he's also gay, you know, and so it's, it's really, it's a really helpful perspective. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds challenging and sometimes frustrating probably for you. Um, how did that, how did that conversation, if you, if you don't mind sharing, I'm just curious, like how that conversation ended with your agent. Did she have ideas, suggestions? Like what does that relationship look like in terms of being able to push back for her too or for that person.
3: Uh, just to jump back on your sex education uh, part uh, I love that show as well but I talk to my sister all the time a lot of BBC shows they're all they're more diverse than American shows so it's kind of like they, they don't pick just the pretty people either, you know, America likes to choose the pretty people. Mm. And so that's just another topic. But with my agent, I respected her more just for her being honest and blunt. She's, you know, she's telling me, you know, you were, you were wanted um, when everyone's like, we want more diversity. We We want more diversity. And now in that market, It's now we want more uh, white males who portray like the racist cop or the, the lawyer or, you know, something that I can't do. And it's not anything that she can really do. There's not anything really I can do. It's more of who's writing these and where are the markets going? What are the trends? And for me to just being patient when it, there's a role that's being called for a young female, um, any ethnicity or a black female, you know, the one, the people who she's representing who look like me, they're at the top of the list and she is ready to make that call. The only thing she says she can do is, well, I can open up auditions to non-speaking roles for you, but Amber, I know you're you're better than just going out for non-speaking roles, especially if you're going to drive out to a whole nother market to do it. You know, so do you want to do that? No, I, I. you know, I want you to give me the best roles possible. I don't want just non-speaking roles. I want something that's going to benefit me and that's going to help me move forward in my career. And if I have to wait patiently, I have to wait patiently. If I have to write my own material, that's what I, which I plan to do as well. And I've been working on a few a different, you know, a few different ideas. Um, that's what I'll have to do. But I also have other markets that I'm looking forward to um connecting with and uh revamping my relationship with those agents. I have an agent in Atlanta and markets do make a um a difference. You know, Colorado is dominantly white, Atlanta, there's a there's a really big black community. And it's funny, when I had my first project out there, I had a whole culture shock myself. I'm like, whoa, I've never been around so many Black folks in my life. And mm-hmm. that almost made me feel uncomfortable. But then I also felt comfortable because it's like, well, finally, I don't have to worry about bringing my own makeup. Finally, I don't have to do my own hair. Um, and I had a shoot last week here in Denver, and I gave it a chance. I said, you know what, I'm not going to do my makeup. They want me to come clean face. Let's see what happens. And the makeup artist was from Russia. She's this Russian lady and she did phenomenal. First time she matched my skin tone. And um, there's one comment she said, though. She was like, the only thing that I'm not going to front or um, even dabble with is, you know, ethnic hair. That's the only thing that will keep me from doing the job. But. Um, if you can do your own hair, I will do your makeup. And so it's just kind of like that. Let's be a team here and keep moving forward and educating each other.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Amber. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate y'all's vulnerability. Um, had, the other piece was like hair and makeup. I, you know, this is, it's illuminating for me as well. Cause I, I'm a, I'm one of those like blue eyed, blonde haired white girls. who's like, what's up? Right. I walk into a makeup store and the things are there that I want and that I need. And it's, you know, um, it's part of being conscious of that and being smart about who else is on the set as well, makeup designers and writers and who's, who's present. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Zaria Rose, would you, would you like to share next?
2: I I just want to speak um, to your, the those, those points that you brought up um, in a few different ways. You sort of mentioned this idea of stepping back, um, stepping back from inclusion, stepping back from diversity efforts. And that's, that's unfortunately so true in, in the field of opera. Um, as you can imagine, opera is a very old art form. It's a very white art form, It's a very wealthy art form. I mean, its very advent was, you know, it was essentially in a palace and or out of the oratorio tradition so of course it came from the white church and the white monarchy um so, so so many of these traditions still live i want to bring up some further examples but to speak to my own experience it was just a few weeks ago you know where we have um you know a pretty popular young artist forum and there are there are a few out there on on facebook and the like uh, especially in instagram and it's a, it's a fairly small community as you can imagine um relatively speaking versus, you know, like, like actors, for example, um, that's a larger field. And so, um, you know, somebody shared something from that. Somebody had shared on Twitter and Instagram story or something about, you know, we need to get back into audition rooms and these agents need to, you know, pardon my French, but get off their ass and come back into the audition room. And it's like, didn't we just spend two or three years making more inclusive audition efforts for people who are disabled, for people who can't afford to be flying out to New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Texas? What, how have we lost the plot so significantly? And it's because so many of the people who make up this field, even well-intentioned young people also stepping into their careers, are people who have the financial support from their families, from their churches from their institutions, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, even you, you think if you have parents or family who can fund an audition trip, that is the difference between some people getting the gig and some people not. And of course, classism is intersectional and it's a huge issue that I have faced being in this industry because I come from, um, uh, like I said, I grew up in a, in a later to be a single parent household. Um, I was uh, legally adopted and I had my mother and my adoptive family had custody of me and my adoptive family, that situation was incredibly abusive. And it got so dangerous that eventually I moved to live fully with my mom, who was a single mom, a church musician, made very little money. And I have three other siblings, (laughs) you know, stepping into this field was is unspeakably difficult and different from other people just to audition for opera companies you pay audition fees upwards of 50 75 dollars but regularly 25 dollars, and that's just to be heard for a quote pre-screen and unfortunately so so many people are not even aware of much less care in a meaningful actionable way about what that means as, as barriers for people And of course, you know, bringing up intersection, intersectionality. I'm not at a stage in my career where I have necessarily had to make choices about what contracts I take or who I audition for, or who I sing for. But there are artists who have, I think of Angel Blue, who had to just step out of a production in Italy because of the use of blackface by the company. You know, this is an internationally renowned soprano and You you know, speaking of opera being archaic, you know, blackface, forgive me if this is these are outdated terms, but, you know, blackface, um, Asian face are still regular practices at major houses nationally and internationally. And it's left to the most marginalized to make these choices as opposed to people who are less affected or aren't affected at all stepping up and saying, no, we need more inclusive audition spaces. We need more inclusive performance practices. And um, yeah, once the pandemic has passed, the sort of desperation or scarcity mindset of people has popped right back up where it's, how do I get the gig? How do I sign with the company at any cost, including the cost of people in your own community? And unfortunately, I see that bubbling back up um, as Amber discussed. Uh, not just in casting, but in the community. And I really wanted to speak to that point, um, mostly, you know, related to my direct experiences, but um, also to the experiences of people of color and, and Black people. Uh, black Opera Alliance on Instagram and Facebook talk a lot about this issue. Also the aspect of desirability, being a, a you know, a fat woman, and being a plus size woman. <laughs> people conceive of opera. It's not over until the fat lady sings. And yet the discrimination barriers faced against anyone of size, it's unbearable. Tracy Cox, uh, Sparkle Jams on Instagram, talks further about this. But yeah, to sort of begin to delve into those points. I know all of us could talk all day and um, I don't want to be long-winded. But Amber, your comments just kind of inspired me to bring that up on my list of notes. So... Thank you very much for say, saying. Thank you for sharing that. It might seem like a placation, but really, it's it's a difficult conversation, and it, it affects not just our personal state and our socio political state, but you know our financial well being too. So it's it's a triple quadruple gut punch, you know.
0: So, thank you for for your vulnerability and and openness. We really appreciate it, and the socioeconomic pieces and and what you shared about. The fee is to be, to be pre-screened or to be heard at all. Those are pieces about that world that I, I didn't know. So the emotional cost, the cognitive cost, and then the financial cost of putting yourself out there and putting yourself in that world again and again. I'm curious if you, if you don't mind sharing and then we'll, we'll transition to the next question. If you feel like you have the support to ask for changes in that space, or if there are fo- folks that are kind of pushing for removal of those financial barriers in order to audition or in order to engage in that space in opera, I'm just curious if you can speak to that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so there are uh, there is a collective or two that I've written down here in in my notes to make sure to mention. Like I said, Black Opera Alliance. You know, they sent out this amazing letter to major opera houses all over the country. You know about diversity and inclusion in in casting and in canon choices, um, that is repertoire choices, what operas are even being performed, and you know about people of color and black people being included in these spaces and there that effort was just incredible. There has been a noticeable change within the past couple of years because of these efforts, and I think that's <laughs> I mean, what they've done is so risky because these are artists themselves. And, you know, you never want to be the difficult singer, the difficult artist, the difficult professor, whatever the case may be. The, you know, <laughs> subversive one, I should say. And so these are people putting their own artistic careers, I guess, on the line, for lack of a better term, to make way for, for this inclusion. And another group is um, the Soloist Collective for Emerging Artists, they run surveys like financial questionnaires, application fee trackers. They reached out to companies and, you know, asked what the purpose of these application fees are. Did they plan to remove them for the pandemic and thereafter or reduce them? They post on social medias when companies have either stayed the same or raised their application fees, um, which, you know, seems aggressive. But when you have... <laughs> companies raising fees like $25, which is already, you know, pretty considerable to $40 over a, a pandemic, you know, first and foremost, you have to ask why. And second of all, they should be held accountable. These, these collective and organizations are incredible in general, in the community. Um, like I kind of said, I think we are still painfully lacking solidarity about these things. Like I've said, I, I don't mean to be uh, harsh, but some people, just really, some people just really miss the plot, y'all. I mean, just over their heads. If they're getting a contract, then it's, well, I don't think we should blame systemic issues on young artists. And it's like, what is the system without the people operating within it? Particularly when you are a person with relative privilege, what is the system without the moving cogs? You are also a cog in the system just like I am, just like people who yes with relative uh less privileged positions are too in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. The question is how do we keep the machinery going for everybody? If you refuse to move, you either are will be moved or you cause everybody else to be stagnant. It's one of the two. And some people just don't Get it. And that is unfortunate. So to focus on the positive, and i you know, I'm trying to give shout outs as I go. Um, oh, AGMA is our union. Of course, joining a union is incredibly difficult and expensive for young singers. <laughs> and young singers are the most vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. Amber's nodding because I'm sure she knows, and I'm sure Rebecca knows too, but expensive, timely. Um, but they keep their eye on us in a good way. And um yeah, that is the Musical Artists Union, too. So um, yeah. thank you for asking that question, Ashley. I, I really yeah. appreciate the uh, opportunity to kind of expand
0: on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to let Maria um, take us into our next question. I just wanted to say this is like, this is wonderful. This is an excellent conversation. So thanks, y'all, for for what you're sharing so far.
1: I definitely echo that. Um, I just, because I heard something and I really liked it. Amber, I really liked what you said about how we kind of pick and choose how diverse we're going to be. Like we pick the ethnicities and races we're going to put. And I thought that was very powerful. And I really liked that. And I wanted to make sure I said something about it. And yeah, I think this is a great segue into our next section, which is interpersonal, which is kind of the way that you communicate with others. So how does equity and justice influence how you interact with those in your industry? And does equity and injustice influence what you do or don't take and or what you create or
3: put out in the world? In TV, film, acting, and sometimes in theater as well, um, when I get on set and it's just me sometimes, uh, as an African-American woman, it's sometimes I get really uncomfortable. Like you've, and it's like, how's this going to affect me when I go, when it's my time to be in front of the camera and where I feel like I can't ask questions or I can't Get comfortable with even my scene partners because I don't know them. I have to try to play this like happy go. I feel like I have to play another character of myself, happy go lucky. I'm I'm a safe person to be around. I'm I I might have something in common with you, so let's get to know each other. But I got to put on this smile, so I feel like I'm approachable to this other person. And it affects me because I walk on set and sometimes I feel alone. I'm like, do I just sit here and read my script by myself? Um, I don't really have that much in common with people sometimes. And then I don't always want to talk about issues or in the in the industry all the time with somebody just to connect with somebody like, yeah, this is, you know, my first role. And uh, I know my first like three or four roles getting into film, they're always the Black best friend. And, you know, I had to always be the, the Black best friend and I'm only there for a few minutes how many roles have you done? You know, kind of questions or act, you know, acting out with the other person. And it just affects me because at the same time, when I think about the roles that I get, it's always the person on the side, you know, it's always the person, just a few lines here, a few lines there. And then it makes my passion kind of dwindle down at the same time. And when will I get the main or reoccurring role that has nothing to do with my ethnicity? Like, why can't I just be the friend? Why can't I just be the main character whose uh, friend is, is white, you know? And the first time I saw that was Disney when Raven Simone played That's So Raven, some, you know, is that a black show or is that just a Disney show? (laughs) You know, and now you have all these other shows where you have, you know, three people who are white. You have a a Hispanic friend and a black friend and then you have transgender and then you have someone who's, you know, disabled. So then it's almost like you see these new shows where it seems like it's, they all try to put everyone in one, like it's thrown in your face. Like, okay, there's a lot of people going on. You guys, now it's very clear and too much. Like you did it on purpose and it doesn't look believable anymore. So it influences me because, you know, I I want to, when I'm writing something, like something in my mind, I I don't want to just like, have too much but I also want it to be realistic in my world yeah I'm in I'm in Colorado it's dominantly white but in my world in my eyes I go home and what I see is black but when I go outside half maybe even more of my friends are white and I'm okay with that because that's what I grew up with you know it's almost like I have to be okay with it but that doesn't always mean I've had a lot of conversations with my friends and it's like they, they didn't get it until Obama became president. You know, the things that I go through. It's like, oh, now I see it only because there's cameras out there showing it.
1: I'm curious to know a little bit more about
3: what it will look like for you when you do your writing
1: in the sense of like wanting like that, that diverse piece, but also not wanting it to be like blunt and not having to hand those pieces out that way. Do you mind saying a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, so... My right, I haven't, I've never written anything before, so it's kind of new to me. So I'm still trying to like put things together. What are my thoughts Um, in my, in my world? Because my parents, you know, I've, I went to an all white school and it's just me and my sister. And then I, I went to a very diverse school um, where it was everybody. And then traveling, like I said, traveling to Atlanta where I had this big culture shock going on. Um one of my ideas for this project that I want to do it's (laughs) I'm thinking of naming it like America's nightmare which is mostly just like this reverse role in um in the world what if this this uh white woman main character wakes up and one day the world is oh we're scared of you and you know Everyone in the corporate world, they're all black. Everyone who can control everything, everyone's black. So everything's kind of reversed, you know, of like, you know, slavery, after slavery, you know, where the, the not the white woman, the white person is the minority. And we're all scared of that, you know, that person. And he, you know, before she woke up, everything was in today's world, you know, everything was how it is today. And then she wakes up this one day where everything is just completely flipped around kind of thing. It's like, is this America's nightmare where black people took over, you know, kind of thing. Or, you know, minority groups took over, you know, <laughs> like what would happen with the world freak out. And it's kind of just like, who who's in my group of people that I can trust with this project who can see this, not get offended or be sensitive. We, we're in this cancel culture and it's kind of like, You know, how far can I take it? How far can I push? And who can, you know, you have other groups. I have my group of friends. I have, even my family, we're so colorful. So I, you know, I I have an Asian aunt and I have a, you know, I have a whole bunch of white cousins and, um, you know, just a whole bunch of different people. So in my world, I see everybody and it's like, how do I put those minority groups though in the front? Um, without being too obvious.
4: I was just really uh, inspired by a lot of what you're sharing, uh, Amber, and then also Zoe Rose, what you were sharing earlier, and hoping I could pick up on a couple of threads and try and weave those into answering the question too. I think the way, Amber, you are articulating that fear, right, of the nightmare of oppressive systems being flipped, that is such a powerful fear and does so much terrible work, I think to contribute to what Zoe Rose is talking about when she's saying people lost the narrative, right? Because why do they lose the narrative? I think a lot of that is fear. And it's been interesting moving countries. I moved here a couple of years ago to Sweden from the U.S. Um, where there you might hear in the news all the time how great Sweden is in terms of progressive politics. And it is progressive, but it's still humans. And um, they have their own problems here, socially and politically, in terms of power and oppression. I would say they're farther along than the U.S. in terms of gender equity, specifically in terms of advancing women, specifically in the workplace, for example. But it's interesting to see how I perceive as an outsider men having responded to that. Which I think so. I I love your story uh, that you're going to write, Amber, about the white woman's nightmare that she wakes up and she's the minority. But I think men, some men in Sweden are living that nightmare, where they look and see corporate boards or other places of power and more and more women are taking space there here. You know, there've been uh, quotas and things mandated by the government to make that space, make that possible. But I think while most men probably felt goodwill towards that, they never did the next step of thinking, how would they change? What would they do to be different, right? So they could only imagine a system flipping oppression. They could not imagine, or culture could not imagine, something better, where there would be equity for as many people, right? For everybody. Somehow that wasn't imagined. So there are problems in society then where men are sort of absent. There are problems with men's mental health. It's complicated, So that nightmare about uh, oppression flipping. And the work that it does is really um, powerful and sad. <laughs> And I think the arts and entertainment, actually, like uh, you were both talking before, Zoe Rose and Amber, about like wanting to help people through opening up in different ways. I think that one of the most powerful things entertainment can do for us is help us imagine beyond, like beyond binary oppressive systems, help us imagine something better where we could all have a place at the table. How could that be? What could that look like? Uh, because I don't think a lot of people are imagining that necessarily. Another thing I wanted to connect in with that you were saying Amber was about being on a set where maybe you're the only black person, the only black woman and your scene partner is wondering like, you know, how many parts have you been? What have what have you done? Tell me your CV. I totally relate into that. Uh in in games it's mostly men and uh also, you know, in in higher education In that field. And so I'm always cred, I call it cred checking, getting cred checked. And even by my students sometimes. Um, And oh, that can be exhausting, can't it? Feeling like you've got to prove yourself again and again and again. And I've just become kind of used to just consistently being underestimated. For example, I've been working with augmented reality since 2006, but I let men explain augmented reality to me all the time. Because I'm tired of then saying to them, this is my CV, and I know it. Uh, it's exhausting. On the other side, I think, and it's difficult, I think, also to access leadership positions because of that. People are always underestimating. On the other hand, I, there's places where I have lots of power in, uh, in my job, and, and um, that would be in the classroom for me. So that's where I try to aspire to the good trouble. John Lewis talked about, the wonderful congressman from Atlanta, civil rights leader, where, yeah, maybe the, maybe the curriculum is working really smoothly and, and running along, but maybe it shouldn't. Maybe, maybe it's time to break it a little bit. And that's, that's what I try to do in a way that's constructive um, and try to reach out to other colleagues too and say, can I come into your class? Can I teach a module on this? Can I bring this into your class? Yeah, it's going to mess things up for your class a little bit. Well, might be worth it.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to tug on, on some threads I've heard, and then we'll, we'll have Zoe Rose share as well part of what i'm what i'm hearing with with all of you and i think this is a shared sentiment with everybody on this on this recording right now is the emergence of individualism from you know white supremacy and capitalism and um, how that shows up in the places where where all of us work and the Sort of solution pieces that I'm hearing from all of you include mutual aid and community-oriented efforts and a more horizontal community conversation. And so, I just want to make that really obvious for the listeners that, like, that is like a Black feminist framework. It is an Indigenous feminist framework. It's a queer feminist framework to approach all of the facets of the work that um, that y'all are doing to be community-oriented and to be rooted in what bell hooks called them a, like a, a a democratic education that is rooted in reciprocity um, and not hierarchy. And so I just wanted to, like I said, make that really obvious to listeners um, that not only are you all incredible in your fields, but that you are really tapping into those pieces um, to do, to do the best work, not just for yourselves, but for your community. So I just wanted to share that. Um, Rebecca, I'd love to, um, poke a little bit more at, at something that you that you talked about and um, a little bit earlier of of how you view game design and games as um, a storytelling vehicle and as um, its own sort of theater um, and how that as we've been talking how that sort of is is woven into this as well. Just wanted to come back to that because I really
4: liked what you said about that. Well, I guess theaters theater builds worlds. Uh, in the traditional theater, uh, you go like in film, and you, you're going to sit in a darkened audience and see a kind of world unfold before you. And somebody's designed that world. I mean, they've written it. Um, they've, they've designed the physical elements of how it looks, the scenography and everything, and they're enacting it for you, and it's unfolding for you. And games are doing the same thing, but you're in it. So games are creating a whole world for you to inhabit. Um, you know, commonly that's a 3D animated world um, with with other characters who have been portrayed by voice actors or motion capture actors, right? And then, but you're one of them. You're you're with them, and so there's this combination of some form of traditional storytelling, like from Hollywood or or theater, um, along with play, the element of play, which is so like deeply human. Where we all play, so games are storytelling worlds. They don't have to be. I mean, we can look at something like Tetris and say maybe not, but a lot of games have rich narratives, rich uh, storytelling environments. And I think there's huge potential there to help us imagine better. I mean, I think there's a shocking number of games and stories in film and theater today that are really negative, that are, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic nightmares, right? It seems to be very easy for us today to imagine the world becomes even more terrible than it is. I think the real important challenge is how can we imagine it better? How can we imagine that it could get better? And that's where I think entertainment can play an incredible, vital, healing, even spiritual role for us uh, to to try and inspire us to think better, to imagine better, a better future together.
0: Thank you. Yes, I love it. I'm a big fan of speculative fiction and... I read that kind of stuff, and it's it's really cathartic to imagine what it can look like if it gets better when it gets better, um, so I appreciate you bringing that into the conversation Zoe rose would you would you like to share
2: Rebecca? I just want to say that I play a game called Never Alone, and it's um basically a video game about native Alaskan culture, and it's so funny um my boyfriend and I first decided to start playing it because the menu show graphics, uh like the title screen, the box that accompanies as a sort of familiar the character looks like my dog who's a husky, um, an Alaskan husky. And um then sort of unraveled into this beautiful game about native Alaskan culture and I just wanted to speak to that point and say that there's so much important and beautiful and fun work that is being done um, in an effort for, you know, inclusivity and education. And (laughs) I, I've always been a little bit of a gamer, so (laughs) it's been awesome getting into adulthood and getting to experience more diverse and educational games too. So. I I know that I've discussed it in bits and pieces before, you know, um, about how does inclusivity affect the way that I might interact with people in my community. And of course, how it affects what work I do or don't take. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a fledgling. Um, I sort of reached my academic zenith just last year. I was 23 with a master's degree. Yay. So, um, I'm very young for opera and I was young for academia and I am young for academia being a professor. And I try and take the opportunity to impart things to my students about their identities and their lived experiences.
3: So what opera is, is of course, the loudest sound a human can make
2: you know what we do is without amplification there's no microphone and we're filling entire halls with our voices and for people who have experienced marginalization personally or politically this can be a really therapeutic experience to both create and uh perceive opera because it's very visceral it should be very visceral and um I think for people who have been denied the opportunity to speak or to be loud, for stepping into this genre of singing musical theater too, because musical theater is is much objectively much more diverse in terms of the stories musical theater has shared by, by way of the repertoire. I want to give them the opportunity to explore their voice and their sound. And it's very emotional for these students telling, one of my students who's a young black woman and it's her first time really having voice lessons. And she's always had a gift, but basically repeatedly reminding her that she has the opportunity to release and to, you know, make good noise, you know, speaking of good trouble, just good noise, a joyful noise for those of you who are churchy like me. (laughs) And, I'm getting emotional just talking about it because I've seen the change in them, both as students and as people. And I know that they can go and carry this out into the world, whether they do music vocationally or not. And they absolutely have potential to, but if they decide to do otherwise, it changes their lives. In terms of my colleagues, like I've said, I have so many people who understand marginalization, oppression, classism as they attempt to breach, as I should say, the industry. And it really is a breach. (laughs) Like, I'm so sorry. Um, Immediately, unfortunately, my mind went to like the absolute craze and awfulness of the insurrection and just sort of like like marginalized people pounding at the doors of opera, like, Um, breach. That was such a dramatic choice.
0: I love it. It's a great word.
2: (laughs) It really is that. And there are people who have experienced less or relatively no barriers, like I said, by way of uh, financial support, by way of, of course, being men in the industry. Um, men, the, the statistic at this point is at least four to one. So you have four, I should say soprano, mezzo, contralto voices, because of course, people who sing these fachs not, do not always identify as uh, cis women or women, period. And also you have, quote, countertenors, um, even s- people who identify as cis men whose voices are suited for soprano, mezzo-soprano repertoire. Um, four to one, you know, soprano, mezzo-soprano, contralto versus tenor, baritone, bass baritone, et cetera. Meanwhile, the things that are being chosen as repertoire are still traditionally, you have the main soprano or two sopranos and then the influx of of male characters or... Equitable roles, and ter- so you might have like two or three soprano, mezzo sopranos, and then two or three baritone, tenor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you have, and you knowingly have, a four, five to one ratio, you would think companies would say, "Okay, we need to start making some changes in terms of what we're programming, so that you know people can be cast and go forth, and you know, at bare minimum, make money, but." to increase the size of the community and inclusivity. And that's just not happening. Um, And again, the people who are not affected by it, which is widely, as I said, people who sing tenor, baritone, bass, baritone, bass repertoire, respectfully don't care as much. It's it's the same thing with people who have familial support. It's the same thing with people who are white, who uh, watch blackface happened, angel uh sorry, uh asian face happening. And then people who are marginalized like angel blue are forced to bear the brunt. And it creates an environment of resentment to be quite frank. I walk into a lot of rooms and I share a lot of spaces even online
3: with people and it <laughs> it's frustrating and as i've said it's resentful because
2: it's just a matter of I'd love to say it's that you don't get it but you do get it and you don't care and it's inspired friends and I to consider our own performance opportunities um I have a a friend um who is you know queer very gender non-conforming um and they do of course drag and they do opera functioning as a cis man and that's really really difficult for people like us who are queer who don't care to abide by a binary so we have things like all fucked up which is a play on the of course (laughs) all fucked up all fucked up um (laughs) where let's say i wanted to sing an aria from la bohème or i wanted to sing an aria from that would normally be given to a baritone or a tenor, I can sing that in appropriate key or register for me, and vice versa. Let's say uh, he wanted to sing um, Musetta's waltz, for example. Sort of turning the repertoire and canon as a start up on its head, um, because that's what we have power and control over for the time being. Um, you know, I can't go and make people care. I can engage in discussion as much as I can and be frank with them and say, I think you're really missing the plot here. And I I do that. <laughs> but um <laughs> let's be clear. I do that regularly um and harshly. But in terms of actionable things,
3: um it can it can feel powerless. It can feel powerless. Ugh. y'all I'm gonna
0: cry. It's fine. i i appreciate what you shared about sorry rose about how the tool of opera as a tool of catharsis um as a way to make good noise i really connected with that and that um i grew up in the church so i i i hear the like make a joyful noise that's familiar to me
1: Thank you for joining us for part one of our podcast episode, Equity Meets Entertainment. Join us for part two, where we discuss the big picture of arts in the entertainment industry.